Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Good morning, everyone, or I guess afternoon or evening, if that's when you're listening to this. I am recording this in the morning. It is 9 a.m. on Christmas, actually. And I don't think I'll release this today, but I had a bunch of thoughts in my head that were top of mind that I figured would be best if I just got out when the time came and it relates to Christmas. And I guess I'll be releasing this near Christmas, so it all works out. But I am alone on Christmas this year, and I've sort of been slowly but surely removing myself from Christmas for the past couple years, kind of semi-intentionally, but also not intentionally, just in terms of how the plans worked out, where I was at in my life, what I wanted to be doing. It was really, though, only in the past few years that I actually started to think like, hmm, I have free will and can make my own decisions about how I want to spend the holidays. Um, And it doesn't just apply to the holidays, I suppose. I think part of the process for me has been about reconstructing my identity. And within that reconstruction is a bit of a shifting, rejiggering of what it is that I want to do Um, in a very micro and macro sense, what I want to do in the world and how I want to spend Christmas. And, uh, you know, last night I was home alone. I'd worked all day. I had a bunch of photos to edit. I took a bath. I listened to some music. I lit some candles and it felt really good. I didn't feel any sort of lack. You know, I texted with a few people that I care about and that I love, but it's just a day and I don't, I'm not religious. I'm not Christian. I've never had that association with Christmas. So sure, it was a time that I got together with was my dad. We would do Christmas with my dad. My parents were divorced. And so there was, yeah, some sort of, you know, um, tradition that I was with my dad and my brother on the holidays on Christmas. And that was always lovely. I I really don't have any complaints about spending that time doing it, but I do think as I've gotten older, I've started to rethink what it means to participate in an event like this, which, you know, <clears throat> when you break it down, I don't have any religious identification with the holiday. I don't totally agree with the societal 
obsession with the holiday and so far as consumerism and just the whole thing kind of makes me nauseated. I don't like buying a bunch of presents for people just because we're supposed to. I don't like people buying a bunch of presents for me. I don't really want to cut down a bunch of trees. I'm really unsure why we're decorating the trees like they're pretty, but I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't resonate with any of it. And, you know, I, with my own family, I was something that I've been talking about recently and like why I think part of Christmas became uncomfortable for me is because, and I don't think this just relates to my family. I see this elsewhere as well, that we take something like Christmas or any sort of holiday, even a birthday. And we say like, okay, if we just show up for this day or these couple days and we're all happy and drinking and eating and giving each other presents and like, great, that means we're a family and then we can retreat back to our lives and like not really be there for each other and support each other for the rest of the year. And I'm not saying that's what every family does and I'm not even saying that's what my family does, but there was a little bit of a flavor of that for me, of feeling like, you know, I'd rather be in a family in a different way. To me, what it means to have a family and be in a family and feel supported is not showing up for Christmas and going through the motions of what we're supposed to do. And it's really hard to redefine yourself and come back home to what you authentically feel. And that was definitely the process for me with Christmas and the holidays was like, wait a second, I know this is what we've been doing for a million years. I know this is what the world does, but this doesn't feel like me. And I think I've spoken about this before, both on my own podcast and when I've been interviewed sometimes. <clears throat> One of the most meaningful exercises that I did over the past couple of years for myself was really asking myself why I did everything and like minute things <laughs> in addition to bigger things, right? So like, why am I washing the dishes at night? Is that because I just feel like I'm supposed to, or is that because that's what I authentically want to do? Why am I eating this type of food? Why am I wearing this piece of clothing? Why am I going to hang out with this person? Why am I celebrating this holiday? Why am I texting this person back or not texting them back? I, I became a little bit obsessive about asking myself that because I recognize that so much of my own identity and choices were constructed vis-a-vis -vis someone else's desires or society's desires. And I didn't know how else to crawl my way out of that mess other than to ask myself the question of where is this coming from? And the answer is not always super clear, but it did really, really help. And in the process of doing that, I slowly but surely reconstructed myself based on choices that felt authentic to me. And where I think the struggle for me was most difficult was, you know, I was talking to a friend recently about youth and how youth is defined almost by continuous deaths of the self. And like, fuck, could I relate to that? You know, I think I look back on the life that I lived from you know, 16 to 28. And it's like, I definitely died more than once. And so there's the death of the self. And there's, of course, our actual death, which also I think provokes quite a bit of change in oneself. But there's a third death. 
And that's the death of reality. And once we change, once we go through our own death, our own metamorphosis, the world around us and the people around us don't look the same anymore. For me, that was the hardest part is that I was like, okay, I'm going through all these changes. This is who I want to be. And I, I expected that I could run into the open arms of all the people that were in my life that I thought supported me and the world that I thought would support me and be like, yay, I'm so glad that you are who you want to be. Let me embrace you. And that didn't happen. And in fact, I ended up running into the same darkness that forced me into the metamorphosis in the first place. And that was, you know, really terrifying because then there was the question of, all right, well, I've never been in this place before. So I've gone through all this work to redefine myself. It's fucking hard. I'm trying my best to cultivate some sort of self-love when I'm simultaneously supposed to recognize that like other people's love is not defining of who I am. It was impossible. I felt like I was just floating in outer space for so long. And I remember having several conversations with my dad where he was like, I know that you can't envision what the light at the end of the tunnel looks like, but I promise you that it exists. And I don't really know what it was inside me that held on. Perhaps the misery of my previous life. Um, perhaps just my own ruthless <laughs> determination in accomplishing what I set out to accomplish. But I didn't give up. And instead of trying to force family and society to support me, I actually just decided to kind of isolate myself, which was painful in and of itself, but I think actually wildly useful. Because once I was able to step out and away from all of that, I was able to get a clearer, stronger picture of who I was that when that light at the end of the tunnel did appear, I could recognize it as the light. And I would feel strong enough and secure enough to walk toward it. And my dad was right through that isolation, through that process of finding myself, I very much did find people who were on my level and found people that were willing to, not just willing to, just like built to, did their own work that enabled them to support me and my happiness and my authenticity. And I think this goes both ways, right? Like if we're not supporting the people that we love in their own happiness and authenticity, I'd really like to know what we think that we're doing. You know, love doesn't ask for compromise. It asks for two unique individuals to come together and create something new, something bigger than both of them. But neither one of them are compromising. There's some video uh, that makes its way around Facebook sometimes of Eartha Kitt talking about this, being like, why would I compromise? <laughs> What is there to compromise about? And I totally resonate with that. There's nothing to fucking compromise about. If you're being asked to compromise yourself or your desires or your needs or your authenticity for someone else, that's a red flag. That's not what love is. And if you can't be there for someone's true self, then you need to remove yourself and stop trying to force them into a place that they're not in. And honestly, letting them go or taking a break is the most loving thing 
that you could do. And same goes in the inverse. If someone isn't meeting you where you're at, you need to be strong enough to walk away and go through that own, your own dark night of the soul in recognizing that that isn't what any of us need. We don't need to sacrifice and we don't need to give up parts of ourselves to be loved and accepted. You know, I think there's this bullshit cultural norm left over from like the whole age of Pisces, the religious movement, this idea that martyrdom and discomfort and suffering is what love is. And that's bullshit. It's not. You know, saving someone's not love, being a martyr is not love. These things are not love. And they're for sure uh, ideas and concepts that I was raised thinking that my own discomfort by discomforting myself, I am loving you. And I expect you to sacrifice for me too. Man, that is just (laughs) a big, dark black hole of shit. Um, you know, love, real love is living in your own truth and happiness unapologetically and supporting others in their own truth and happiness. That's it. It's not more complicated than that. And I definitely spent quite a bit of time settling. I just my I just recorded the second bonus episode for Patreon um, where I talk about how I think in large part I've maybe come out of the phase of deaths of the self in my youth. And that from this point forward, although I'm fully aware that my life will change and shift, that I'm going to be this person who I constructed now into the future. And I've only been able to recognize that because I finally found spaces and people and community and things that make me realize I don't ever have to settle again. And that this world that I thought was such a fantasy, not only that I thought was such a fantasy, but everyone else thought was a fantasy too. Like, oh yeah, that sounds great, Anya, but like in theory, not in practice. But because I didn't give up, because I kept looking, it seems like not only does that quote unquote fantasy exist, but it's like more beautiful and spectacular than I could ever have imagined. And it's real. It's not a fantasy. And that too, like that whole idea of people telling us that what we want is not possible, is their own fear, right? Like that isn't about us, but we take it on and we assume that it is. And if we can't have what we want, we don't want other people to have what they want. Anyway, I won't go on and on about that. I recorded a whole episode about it and uh, shared some kind of vulnerable and personal stories around this. So if you have any interest in that or supporting the show, head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Anya Cates. I, at least for now, feel pretty confident that I want to keep this podcast ad-free, and I want whatever I do to be supported by real people who support me. (laughs) So if you do, um, and you can afford to give as low as five bucks a month, I'd really appreciate that. And uh, in a, 
In addition, in addition to just kind of supporting like the overall time and energy and money that it spends to actually put this show out, which nobody's paying for, by the way, aside from those on Patreon. Um, I'm also doing a lot of extra stuff and giving you all sorts of perks. So bonus episodes, I'm going to be releasing a worksheet on spiritual bypassing in the next couple days, and I'm going to be releasing something like that once a month. I have shirts at a certain level that you can get. Uh, what else? Oh, horoscopes. I release a month, a weekly column of inspiration called Minerva's Muse, where I share like an article that I've been reading or some art that I found or music that I'm enjoying. I send that out as well. And, um, and I've mentioned this a bit before, but all of this really is just like the first step in making this podcast more of a serious part of my own career. And, um, in doing so also making it a bit more immersive and cohesive. That's not really the right, the right word, but expanding on what I have so far. And so what I really want to do is travel a bit more and meet people in person and immerse myself in their world and their experience in an effort to share that with you guys. But that takes way more time and energy and money than just sitting recording an episode over the computer, which has its uh, its downfalls. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be doing a lot of that more, and so I definitely even more so... Um, I'm asking for your support in that. I hope that what I've put out so far has been meaningful. I know a lot of you have reached out and it means a lot to me. Um, anytime you want to do that, it means so much, whether that's like leaving a review on iTunes so that the podcast can reach more people, supporting me on Patreon, even just rating the show, sending me a message, all of that stuff means a lot. And um, the first step in this process is that I am going to be going to Bali at the end of January, which was a rather last minute impulsive decision, but one that I'm really feeling great about. I've wanted to go there for a really long time. I'm going out with some friends. It's going to be kind of half vacation, half work exploration. And so if anyone has any ideas of people out there in Bali who I could interview or just places to go, things to eat, um, places to see and visit, let me know. You can always email me at Anya at AnyaKates.com, send me a message on Instagram, or send a carrier pigeon, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Um, on the topic of travel, this week's episode is with uh, Kiona, who has an Instagram account and a blog called How Not to Travel Like a Basic Bitch. Um, we, I had such a good time recording with her. She's such a kind and genuine person, and I've been following her on the internet for a while and could kind of tell that via her online persona, but speaking with her directly just really reinforced what a genuine authentic person that she is. Um, she's really interested and comfortable discussing issues of complexity and nuance and paradox. So definitely my kind of gal. Um, and I really appreciated us both, as you'll hear in the episode, kind of not challenging one another, but just really discussing these issues in an open way where we can have differing opinions or think different things and share our own unique points and 
um, listen to the other person. It's like, these are the types of discussions we need to be having. Everyone always asks me when I say like, well, what's going to save the world? I'm like, just listen to the podcast. (laughs) Like these conversations, you know, this type of interaction with people where two people from different life experiences, races, whatever it is, can come together and have a meaningful, intelligent conversation about the world. And hopefully that both people walk away with something new and uh, they learn something or experience something that they didn't before. That's it. I know that seems simple, but that's my little contribution, I think, to saving the world, at least thus far. That will expand, I'm sure, in the future. So I won't ramble on too much more. I want you guys to hear this episode. Um, So I'm going to leave you to it. And I'll talk to you on the other end. All right. Thanks, Kiona, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, So I found you via Instagram. You have a hilariously titled account called How Not to Travel Like a Basic Bitch, which got my attention. And I know you have a blog by the same name, and you have a PhD and like a million degrees and have your own hosting business. I always joke on this podcast about how I have like six careers, but I feel like you maybe beat me um, or at least are like on my level. So I totally feel you. Um, so I would love to start off if you could like, instead of me just running down your bio, like just introduce yourself and, and tell my listeners a little bit about you and how you got started on this journey. And we can kind of go from there. Okay, cool. Um, Like you said, I have a million jobs. However, the average millionaire does have seven streams of income. So we're on our way. We're doing it correctly. Good to know. (laughs) Um, But I went to college for sports medicine, realized I didn't want to do sports medicine, but I still finished my degree. And then I went on to get my master's in nutritional epidemiology and a master's in statistics and data sciences and a PhD in nutritional sciences. Um, During that entire time, that was 11 years in school, a really long time. And I needed breaks, lots of breaks. So luckily, school gives you breaks where you have winter break, you have Christmas break, you have spring break. So I would travel every single one of those breaks. I would be out of here because when I'm here in Austin, Texas, which is where I'm based out of, it's either work or school. So I just needed to change my scenery and I would go travel. Well, during those travels, I realized I kept running into the same types of people and uh, I really wanted to avoid them. Like those are the people I didn't want to hang out with because I could probably hang out with them at my university or just around town anyway. And I wanted to, I was seeking or yearning for a different experience and as you can see, I really like to learn. So I really wanted to learn about the place that I was in. And through that entire process, um, I started blogging about my travels. And when I started blogging, I realized there was an inherent problem in the blogging world in that there are only so many people who have access, one, to English, like writing English, and two, um, writing English professionally, which is which are two different things. And then three, having access to technology and learning how and having the freedom to write a blog. And I realized that a lot of the voices that were already in the blogging sphere had similar privileges to me. And I just really wasn't interested in reading about my own experiences. Like I understand how travel is. 
um, because I do it a lot and I don't need to read somebody else's. I wanted to learn. And um, so I decided to turn my platform from blogging about my travels, which I still do sometimes, but I basically have used it to uplift voices that don't always get heard and don't always get a voice and just passing the mic to them. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. It's funny that what you just were saying reminded me when I studied abroad in college and I remember going to visit, um, like my friend and I went to see their friend and they were staying in Prague, which is like still already like all white. But I remember going into their apartment and it was like clear that this group of people from America had all together gone abroad. We're staying in this apartment and we're like in the apartment playing beer pog the whole time, like going out together and like complaining about Prague. And I, at the time it was just like lame. I just thought like, Oh, that's so not the full breadth of the experience that you could be getting. But I then I didn't really quite think about like, not only is it lame, but it's actually like offensive and racist and like destructive. Um, and, and again, like that clearly, and from, you know, I've read a lot of content on your blog and like looked at your page a lot. And that's just so heightened in cities that are predominantly people of color, marginalized communities. Um, so I'd love, I mean, I think we all know what a basic bitch is, but (laughs) I'd love for you to kind of elaborate on like, or give some examples of like, what's the basic bitch way to travel and like, what's a way to travel in a way that's a lot more respectful. And yeah, I, yeah, that's a legitimate question. Mm -hmm. So I've actually thought about changing the name of it a million times and I'm still thinking about it, but to me, basic bitch is colloquial. It targets a specific population. Um, and it definitely gives you a feel of the content that you're about to receive. So if you're automatically offended by the term basic bitch or automatically center yourself and consider, think I'm calling you a basic bitch, then chances are you probably shouldn't be on my page because you're about to get a lot more offended. However, if you think it's funny or you're just curious and you want to see what it is, it really works out and that it attracts a very, I would say like curious, willing to learn type of person, which I like and which is why I've struggled so much with changing it. Um, but basically a basic bitch is not what you would think colloquially basic bitch to mean. Um, traveling like a basic bitch has everything to do with travel etiquette and how we choose to present to the countries that we're traveling in and the respect that we show when we're there. Um, And then also making choices, like acknowledging your privilege when you travel and making choices to leverage your privilege to give back to the community that's giving back to you and teaching you all of these amazing things about where they're from. Um, So like one example is uh, I went to Nicaragua and I wanted to make sure that I... um, there, there's this thing called volcano boarding where you can kind of like board, surfboard. It's not a surfboard, but anyway, you surfboard down this volcano and it looked really cool and extreme and I'm really adventurous. So it's something I wanted to do. But when I went to go look, I saw that there was only one company that was run by a Nicaraguan person. And he was actually the person who invented the sport. Mm. And I was like, oh, I definitely want to go with that guy. Then when I uh, looked at his prices, they were like, double, triple the amount of all the other, um, companies in the area. So I looked at the other companies and I realized that these companies are 
Australian owned, British owned and American owned. And I was like, huh, I wonder why there's such a huge price difference. So I asked him and it was probably a stupid question to ask, but I did. I was just curious. I was like, Hey, why are your prices like so expensive compared to the others? And he wrote me this long paragraph, like an essay, like defending himself. And I felt so bad. I was like, Oh my God, I have to book with him now. He just spent like the emotional energy and explaining to me why. But basically what happens is these um, Australian or West global North um, people use their economic privilege to bring in huge trucks where they can fit 12 people in the back of a truck. And then they take them to the volcano. So when you have 12 people each paying $20, then you still make your profit. But with people like Henri, who's Nicaraguan, he doesn't have the financial capital to buy these trucks. So he is driving people in his personal car. So he can fit up to four people. So he has to charge $50, which like to like, I was a student and I could afford $50. So, you know, if you have a regular job, like $50 compared to $20, isn't that much of a difference. Um, and I, and I didn't, it didn't make sense to me when I was booking it, but it made sense to me after talking to him where he's like, I don't have the money to like fit 12 people in my car. And then as we were going past, we saw all of these huge trucks just like going towards the volcano and you could see, and Henri stopped his car and he's like, I want you to look at what they're doing. So these, these trucks would go so fast and they're all dirt roads. So the dirt would go like float into the air and there were people's homes on the side of the road. So all this dirt was going into people's houses and you could see them kids playing outside, uh, moms washing their laundry and then the dirt goes up and then they have to rewash all of their laundry that's drying because no, none of these companies took the time to drive slowly and think about the other people in the community that they're affecting. Whereas Henri was going very, very slow, making sure like he minimized the dirt that was kicking up. He even stopped to say hi to somebody that he knew. And he was, he introduced us to some kids. He started a school in the area. I mean, like, because he's Nicaraguan, he's investing in his own community, even with the money that he's making. So to me, it was just like, a light bulb moment where I was like, I mean, I was kind of doing this intuitively, but like, it really, really is important to support local companies and local guides because they are invested in their own communities, whereas these external forces have no idea what they're doing. And they don't always have the same pride in the country that they're profiting from. So a basic bitch would not do any research or not even think about this and book a company that is foreign owned compared to a locally owned company. So that's like one example. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a good example. And I think it also speaks to like, I think some people, and maybe I could be wrong, but might react to like a page like yours or someone that does the work that you do and kind of just say like, okay, well then I just like won't go there, but it's such a good example of like, oh, well let's go. Not only is going, like we can actually do good by going there, right? So yes. like you are supporting the local economy, you are supporting the local culture. Um, and I, I think the other thing that I really appreciate with you and the work that you do is like how willing you are to embrace nuance and paradox and that there like isn't always a black and white answer Um, and you have this like amazing series that you do of like white people asking questions about various things. Like, can you buy a dream catcher and have it be non-offensive? And, um, 
you know, one of the examples, just because it happened relatively recently, was like the Day of the Dead, right? And like all of these white people, it's such a fucking social media thing. Um, and I'd love for you to talk about that because I think that's an interesting and like topical for the time that we're in right now. Like, what are the nuances associated with something like that and a white person participating in that sort of a tradition? Yeah, um, I want to preface this answer by I'm not Mexican. I'm not even Mexican American. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to be the voice for that community. I just want to uplift what I've been taught by my teachers from Mexico and Mexican American people. But, um, basically the Day of the Dead is not, um, it's a holiday just to honor ancestors and people who have died. It's a, I would say it's a celebration, but it's a very somber celebration in that like, it's not the same as Halloween, even though they occur around the same times. And I feel like because they occur around the same times, people often get it confused that it's like something that you can celebrate joyously or dress up in as a costume with skulls and, and, and Katrina face, but it's actually not that type of holiday. And by doing that, you kind of are disrespecting the original um, reason for the holiday, which is to celebrate people's ancestors and, uh, welcome them and welcome them back from the dead where they come and visit, um, the living. Uh, with that said, uh, Katrina is a very, it's become a very popular thing to do to paint your face like skull, like a skull and then have like a flower, um, head arrangement. And that is, uh, usually imitating this woman called Katrina, who started out as a print in a Mexican magazine. And it's actually a symbol of, um, it's a symbol of people, Mexicans dressing as white colonialists or white settlers or Spaniards or French that came and colonized Mexico. And they put on these like European style dresses, but underneath it all, they're still indigenous. And so they were so ashamed of their indigeneity that they wanted to be white. And this um, cartoonist did this cartoon about how like at the end of the day, when you die, you're still indigenous. It doesn't matter if you put on clothes of what's underneath is what matters. And so when you put on the makeup without knowing the meaning and you think it's just some fun thing to do, it's again like disrespecting the indigenous peoples of Mexico who are still fighting for their rights, even with the Mexican government, let alone anybody else. Um, and it just disrespects Mexican Americans who have been also separate. A lot of them have been separated from their culture and are striving to learn more. And so as a white person doing that, it also doesn't give reverence to the entire process of like Mexicans and Mexican Americans and being indigenous and not, and being ashamed of who you were because of white people. So when white people do that, it's just a little bit disrespectful, or I would say very disrespectful. Um, however, there are instances where it is okay um, for example, I was hired, I, I have never worn Katrina makeup knowing all of this stuff, but I was invited by the Mexican art museum to cover their social media here in Austin, Texas. And they wanted me to come to encourage Austin people or Austin millennials to vote for proposition B so that they would get funding. Um, they would, they would get a $50 million grant to, be able to offer programs to Mexican American immigrants and children so that they would have a space to do art. 
And to me, that aligned with my beliefs. And because they invited me to this fundraiser, which was called Katrina Ball, and they had face painters there who were Mexican painting everyone's faces, I felt like it was appropriate to take part, especially since it was part of the the whole message. So I did. And because I did that, I felt like I needed to explain to other people that I did this because one, I was invited by Mexicans to do it. Two, I had a Mexican person paint my face and who profited, who I paid to do it. And, um, and three, I learned what it was. And I also presented who she was. So it's, it was an educational moment for me, for other people. And I just wanted to do it respectfully. And I would encourage other people to do it too. And there were plenty of white people there who also did the same thing. They, they participated in makeup, but they paid Mexican people to do their makeup. And then they also donated so much money to this cause of, of celebration of the Mexican art. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you say? Cause I get this all the time when I talk or speak out about stuff like this and talk about cultural appropriation, that there's a response that I get all the time around like, well, at least I'm exposing their culture, <laughs> right? Like, oh, well, by buying sage at like urban outfitters and like buying this dream catcher and like doing these things, like at least I'm like, we're not keeping it in the dark. And I've, <clears throat> it's kind of absurd to me, um, but I would love to hear how you might answer a question like that and like give advice to other people who... I think there's a lot, like, I know for me, it's easy to kind of say like, that's not great and that's not right. And then once you get the response, like as a white person or as just like not a part of whatever group you're defending to then like get into the reasons why feels challenged. <laughs> um, I'd love for you, I know you do that all the time. So I'd love to yeah. hear like how you manage a situation like that. I mean, my first initial reaction is like rage. But after I like <laughs> take a step back, it's like, I guess I try to, this is kind of, um, so I try to do what Jesus did, which I'm not trying to be religious, but, um, Jesus does this thing in the Bible where he asks people questions. So whenever somebody asks him a question, he answers with a question and, it, it, he consistently played people in the Bible by doing that because when you ask somebody a question, it kind of points out their own hypocrisy without directly doing it. So I've kind of adopted um, that <laughs> into my own personal interactions where if somebody says stuff like that, like why, um, well, at least I'm doing this. I always start with a question like, well, why do you think they need you to do this? Or, um, why do you think that you're helping them by doing this? Or how is this helping them? Or just to see one, what they're thinking, what their baseline, what their baseline knowledge is. And like a lot of the times they can't really find a good defense and end up like stripping over themselves where I don't have to do a lot of teaching. They just kind of teach themselves or they understand like the disconnect in that, or they just get really upset because they like really can't defend it. But, um, yeah, so I always try to answer, I always try to answer offensive things with a question first. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, I do. It's fun. I mean, I, I employ that tactic in like other aspects of my life all the time to ask questions, but I love relating it to Jesus. That's <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not trying like, I know, I, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Jesus was a cool dude. I mean, whatever. I, 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 one year in grad school or no, my first year in grad school, I decided to take a religious class because I just wanted to learn more about world religions. And I realized how much we don't know about the context in which like these texts were written. And so I made a promise to myself that I'd actually read all of the religious texts. And the first one I chose was the Bible. And so it's actually the last one I read because it was so long. It took me five years to read <laughs> from front to back. And it's a lot of material. So I don't know, but I it just, it was something that I noticed that you would always answer with a question and it would always be really powerful, you know, the response to it. So I just adopted that in my daily life. Yeah. I love that. This is a question I wasn't really planning on asking. It's like very tangential, but I'm, I'm curious around like, given that this is a quote unquote millennial podcast, like, and that you've gone to so much schooling and now are doing something that's like slightly different from all the stuff that you studied. And like, (laughs) how did, can you just talk about that a little bit? And like, whether, like, are you still glad that you did all of that? And do you feel that your schooling added a lot to the work that you do now? Yeah. Um, so what I do now has nothing to do with the subject that I studied. However, going to school for that long, one gave me the time and space to grow as a human being. I felt like if I didn't have that time, I'd be a really immature person, which I am probably in a lot of ways, but it really gave me space to like think. And then two, it gave me the tools to ask the right questions Um, just being in research and understanding the process of research and how you can introduce bias into science made me start to question everything and every process that goes on, like the process of journalism, the process of writing, the process of like travel in general. Like I apply all of my scientific techniques to my everyday life. And it makes me question how, how entire, um, career bases are based off of a certain process and what biases are being introduced into that. So I would say school definitely helped me do what I do now and that I question everything. It also gave me the confidence to not do what I am doing, not to not do what I studied. Like I felt like if I could survive everything that I went through for 11 years, that I could pretty much do anything. And it made me more confident in my decision to like not continue in that path. Right. Right. Yeah. And on that note too, around like when people are looking for, cause there's so many people on social media doing work like this, activism work, education, what are some things that you might tell someone to look for when choosing to follow someone? (laughs) Yeah, that's such an important question. I just posted (laughs) about that today. I have so many opinions on this subject. And I also like question myself regularly and I'm not going to say that I'm perfect either because I have participated in certain behaviors that aren't healthy and aren't, um, it is not what I would advise you to follow. Uh, but I would say if you're looking for an activist to follow, I would make sure that they have any sort of education in that has taught them how to teach and that has taught them how to do research. If they are just an activist who 
experiences trauma as like most people of color do just being in like a society that benefits white people, of course, you're going to be receiving a lot of things. But if you don't know how to properly relay that information and you weren't taught that and you weren't um, taught to ask the right questions, um, like, for example, I see people, I see activists posting like news articles regularly about things. And I'm like, the problem with the news media is so huge. Their process is so biased. And a lot of it is like strategic to make you feel an emotion and to it's to make it go viral. Because when you have viral clickety bait things, then their ad, <laughs> their ad revenue goes skyrockets. So when I see activists buy into the media i'm like oh my gosh this person was never taught how to do research and how to question the information that's being fed them and and nor to validate sources so i think i personally think having an education really does matter and i mean like even an advanced degree on like doing your own research your own thesis that way you can really understand like what goes into an investigation um so when you're looking for an activist, I would make sure that they have an education. Secondly, I would make sure that they're not participating. Their, their platform isn't based in calling out people. So there's, I would say there's a difference in showcasing what your lived reality is than calling people out. Like I, I've seen people do whole campaigns against a specific person and would not let it go and not even give the other person the space or time to respond and even if they did, they would block them or erase it or um, not publicize their response or their apology. And to me, that's so irresponsible. Like if somebody is apologizing to you or accepting that they're still in their learning or growing process, or maybe even explaining why they did a certain thing and that other activist isn't recognizing that, you know, this person is in a state of growth and is acknowledging that they're learning also then to me, that's a very toxic account. And they're using trauma, their own emotional trauma to teach. And I feel like that is not something that you want to follow. Like you don't need to have somebody's emotional baggage be unloaded onto you while you're trying to learn. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, and I hear this from white people all the time, like, although they're not being like, nice enough or like saying this in a way that I want them to say it. And like, and I struggle with this all the time, because I think it's like in the work that I do, I talk a lot about like gender, sexuality. I talk about childhood abuse and childhood trauma in a way that's uncomfortable, I think for people, because I'm not sugarcoating stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, that's always the way that I've learned. Like when someone says something in like a very like, no, I'm sorry, that's just fucking racist. Like that's what kind of gets me to pay attention, not this like placating. And it even, I, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about too is like, it was when I first recorded the intro to this podcast, I had a line about safe spaces and how like millennials, like I didn't want to be associated <laughs> with that of what what I saw as a safe space as being like a very PC um like centering around whiteness or whatever it was mm. like oh yeah. we better not so how do you how do what are your thoughts about that and like what is a safe space and do we need them and how do we construct them and what does that look like and how are they harmful yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Um, there's like a line. 
So tone policing is a flawed theory in and of itself. So tone policing means that the oppressed can deliver their message in any way that they can because they are being oppressed and therefore it it, it elicits an emotional response. That is 100% true. Um, because it elicits an emotional response, you are allowed, there's no right or wrong on how you respond to an racist act or whatever the case is. However, it doesn't mean that it's going to be received how you want it to be received. And if you, if your aim is to teach people or to get uh, learning from the other side so that it benefits you and your existence, then you do have to control your emotional responses. And if you are triggered and if you are emotional, that's what professionals are for who deal with that kind of stuff. And I honestly can't stress this enough is like therapy is a seriously underused tool. Um, I go to therapy twice a week, twice a week, every other week, bi-weekly. Um, and I've done it since I was 14. And to me, I feel like, um, to me, I feel like people who go to therapy and take the time to make sure that they are healthy in their mind, present themselves better and healthier in the world. If you don't take the time to check out your mind, uh, then you're not taking the time to heal and therefore can't heal others. So I highly recommend it. Um, and all of my therapy has been either free through the school or yeah, like through my high school it was free through college. It was free through grad school it was like $5 or something. And then now I don't go to a I can't afford a psychologist, so I go to a counselor who's a little who's cheaper. She's about thirty dollars an hour. So there is affordable therapy out there. It's just looking, knowing the right types of people to look for, like counselors or I don't know, just not. I would say if you're looking for somebody affordable, just avoid PhD, MD because <laughs> they went to school for a long time and can charge more. If you just go for an MS or a LCSW or something like that, social work. Um, those are a little bit more affordable. Um, what, sorry, I, that was a tangent, but um, what was your original question? Sorry. I was fine. And I was like all into the therapy oh, talk. Safe I, space. I, yeah, safe yeah. spaces. <laughs> safe space. um, I do think there needs to be safe spaces. Like, for example, to me, a safe space is an exclusive space for people with similar struggles to talk about their own struggles. Like, I find that um, there's a huge, there's a huge movement for black safe spaces and I make sure I don't enter those. So, and I think it's important that they have their own space where they can celebrate each other. They can say things without having to be corrected by white people or, or non-black people. Um, and they aren't policed on their tone or their words. Like they should be able to say whatever they want with people who uh, experience similar things. Same for everyone else. Same for the LGBTQ community. Like there are things that cis you know, people don't need to enter into. Um, but when you're a platform trying to make a connection or be a bridge between people, that's when the safe space line kind of like totes. So it's like, you know, tone policing um, kind of is a thing. Cause it's like, if you want to connect to the other person, you kind of have to tailor your response so that it's received well. However, if you're not trying to do that and you randomly grew a following and people are following you and you never ever said that you wanted to be a bridge, then you 
I mean, nobody needs to tell police you like you can do whatever you want. But if that's something that you're striving to do, I would say it does take, it does make a difference. It takes some time to learn how people receive those things. At the same time, people are fragile and you're not always going to connect to everyone. So as long as you know that you took the time to strategically think it out, I don't really think that it's not an unsafe space. Um, It's just that those people just can't operate in society. Yeah. Well, and I guess it can go both ways too. Like I I forget what example online I was looking at, but someone someone like told someone to shut up and the white person was like, oh, like that's what someone said to me before I was like hit. And so I like, that's traumatizing to me. And it's like, you know, it's interesting because it's like, I think on the one hand, it's like, yeah, we should be recognizing who we're talking to and trying to, I guess it depends on intention, right? Like for me, a lot of the time I'm like, I'm not really trying to change people. I'm just trying to like say my opinion. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like, and, and what that person is saying is on the one hand valid, but if they're saying that and using their trauma to excuse their racism. Oh yeah. That's a problem. I, I, I understand what you're saying. I came into this um, somebody wrote an article on the Korean War, and there's just the, there's this thing that happened. It's called Comfort Women, where um, during Japanese colonialism of Asia, they took women of other nationalities and used them as rape tools. They they were there to comfort Japanese soldiers, but you know these women were raped up to fifty times a day. They had to eat each other. They were boiled in soup. Like it was a really bad situation. And those people are still alive today, like and passed those traumas down. Um, but I got somebody who was like, "I was gang raped, and you don't need to put this into the space." And I'm like, "Well, I'm sorry, but you need to stay off the internet if this is going to trigger you because you're centering yourself and somebody else's pain, and like there's really no space for you here." So if you need a safe space for just people who have been gang raped, I think that they should have sought that out. Um, and understand that that's not a, that's not the internet. Like the internet's not going to be, um, it's not going to cater to your specific triggers. And again, that's why you should go to therapy. Yeah. I was going to bring it back to the therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I say all the time, like the thing, um, one of the like taglines of my podcast or just my life in general is fix yourself to fix the world. Like there is, if we're not doing the work on ourselves to address our own traumas, it's like, we can't enact collective change without doing the personal work. But if we're also just doing the personal work and then not turning around and affecting collective change, like it's also a waste of time. And I have so, I take such issue with, it's such a like spiritual white person problem of like, oh, well, like I've discovered that I can't change anyone but myself. And so like, I'm just going to like live in light and love and like go off in the woods and like not raise my children badly. And that's all I can do. Um, And I, I guess maybe that can bring us into the next conversation around like, what is our responsibility? And do we all have responsibilities? Like, are we, especially as like non- people like white people like what are what is our role and what should our role be and and what do you feel around young people and their responsibility to the collective 
Yeah, I think um, that's a really good question. I feel like the responsibility of white people is to educate other white people. One, to like take the time to learn from other people's oppression. And this actually isn't just for white people. Like I think it's important for, like I took my minor in African-American history because I grew up in a predominantly African-American neighborhood and I still live in one now. And I thought it was important for me to learn their generational traumas and what has been going on with them and what their current situation is, even though you pick it up when you're around them all the time. But um, I thought it was important for me to get a formal education on that. But so I, with that said, I think it's important for everyone to learn about each other's experiences. Like I just got an article about Kazakhstan and I had never met a person from Kazakhstan and I learned so much reading the article. And to me, it's fun learning about other people and I consistently seek out education from others. So it's not just a white people thing. I think that's an everybody thing, but I think it's unique to white people where they just dead end stop. They're like, I can't do anything. I just can't handle all of this. So um, I'm just not going to do the work. And like, the point is that like learning isn't always comfortable. And um, especially when you're on the end that did the oppression, we know you didn't do the oppression, but you do, you might take part in a system that does oppress others. So to make sure you don't place yourself in a personal situation and just recognize that like, we, we're not all the same. There is not equality right now. So, um, just to like, when a white person recognizes that I feel so happy and giddy that like, Oh my gosh, I feel safe with this person because they understand that. Am I hating white people? No. Am I personally blaming that one white person for this thing? No. But when I say white people, it's a system, um, that's set up to benefit white people. So, I just think that just educating yourself on that system and how you benefit from it. And then once you have the education, you can only be ignorant once. So once you have an education, it's your responsibility to do something with that education and to teach other people because it is so much more digestible from a white face than it is from a brown face. And um, even for me, like when I'm being educated by let's say like somebody in the LGBTQ community, I would rather be educated by somebody that I know and I'm familiar with. And I know that identifies with those things than I am from some stranger because I don't, I don't know them. So it's just easier when you have like a similarity or a commonality between people. And I think that's why white people should learn from other white people. And then also to take the time to get educated, educated by others. But I just don't think, white people need to teach POC. I think it just, you learn from POC and then you teach other white people. And do you think though at all, like white people doing that type of work is like enacting some sort of white savior complex around like, I'm going to be the one to teach this. And I'm for whatever reason, like more, it's going to be more effective than giving the mic over to a person of color. Like, (laughs) yeah, um, that's a really, really interesting and good question. Um, I think it's important for the introduction, but when it comes to like further education at that point, then you direct them to somebody who can do that work. Um, also it is, I mean, I know this in my own family relations that when, you confront somebody about their racist ideals and they're close to you and you know them, you still have to have a relationship with them. 
So it's not comfortable to go up to your uncle and be like, yo, what you said is racist. Like you can't say that about Mexican people because this, this, and this it's hurtful because this it's violent because of this. I still love you though, but you're racist. And I've had to do it and it is not comfortable and holidays get really awkward. And sometimes while it is my duty to speak out against it, while it's happening, I also have to preserve my mental health. So I think it's an important line to, to understand what are your mental capacities are. So it is your responsibility to call it out. It is your responsibility to educate. But at that same time, if you are feeling broken down, then like you need to regroup also. So I'm not sure if I even answered your question, but there's just this like fine line between teaching and educating other people and introducing them to the subject. And then just one, not having the tools and two, not having the mental capacity to take it all on, especially if there's somebody close to you. Well, and I think like your website is a great example of this. Like you're not white, but you're also not all of the races and all of the cultures that you speak about. And so it's like, okay, I have this platform. I'm going to be like, what I think you're saying is like for white people or whomever, anybody, to say like, okay, I have this platform. I'm going to do this. I'm going to introduce those topics, but I'm not going to sit here and claim that my voice is more valuable than the voices of the people that I'm defending. And like, what you do is like, you're bringing in contributors, you're bringing in people who can speak from those positions. And therefore you're educating, you're just like, the soapbox and like people are standing on top of you. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I'm just the platform and I'm just here to uplift. (laughs) But basically that's just what white people should do. You should just be the platform and then like uplift others in their, in their learning journey. I also think that's why the website is really effective or just like passive reading, because then you can learn passively. You're not like directly talking to a human being. You have time to process it. You don't have like this back and forth. It's just like a ingest and like think about it type of thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, and I think I said this in my email to you too. Like I had a moment when I, I had the idea for this podcast a year ago and like wrote, just like made a big list of all these people that I wanted to interview. And I feel like very pretty active and, um, and certainly like supporting of, you know, black indigenous people of color. And yet my whole list was like a bunch of white people. (laughs) I was just like, fuck, you know? And, yeah. and it's like, and that's, look, it's okay. Like that is what it was. I wasn't going to sit there and say like, you're a fucking horrible person. Like you're a racist yeah. and all this stuff. But it was important for me to reevaluate that and recognize like in what I'm doing, you know, I'm a white person with a platform. And so like, what is the best way to use that platform? To me, the only clear answer is to uplift voices of people that aren't white. Um, and I think we have the opportunity to do that in so many different ways and then bringing it back full circle, like to traveling, like, why are we traveling and what is the purpose of that? And other than I'm going to take this Instagram photo, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. So, okay. So let's talk about it. Okay. Before we go on, I want to say that, um, white guilt just like you 
acknowledged is useless. It's such a useless emotion. So I'm really proud of you for not dwelling in the guilt and instead just doing something about it. Like that's exactly what you're supposed to do. So right. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Except don't center it around me. I don't need any credit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's another thing. Um, I often get that. I understand there are white people who center their like, Oh my gosh, I did so much learning. I'm such a great person. Like, whatever. Um, and they want all this credit and they make it about them. And I understand that that is not okay. When we're talking about nuance, um, there are a lot of white people who do awesome things. Like I saw a video of a white woman literally standing in front of another white woman who was trying to assault, um, a Latina. And I heard someone say like, this woman isn't special don't praise her. And I was like, we're all human. Like, I don't understand why I would love to, I love to say thank you. I love to show my appreciation. I don't understand why that is a bad thing where it's like, I'm not trying to center her in this. Like clearly this was a situation that this woman was racist and the real victim is the Latina woman. And we should concentrate that on that. But also it's okay to say, thank you. It's okay to say like, I appreciate this woman for doing the right thing. And then that shows role modeling. So I think role modeling is one of the most powerful things that we can all use, especially those at the platform to role model for others to see what it looks like. Because a lot of times you don't know what it looks like. And if we continue not to validate the efforts being made, I mean, not to center, but at least just validate then like other white people don't know what that looks like. So again, like, I just think respect is the thing at the bottom where it's like, thank you to that white person to showing this person respect. And a thank you to this Latina person for not attacking the white person in return. And, you know, thank you to the white person for not centering herself either, like making this not about her and like protecting this victimized person. So I just think that there's like room and enough love for everybody. And I don't want to be like one of those spiritual people, but um, (laughs) yeah, I just think we all have a lot of healing to do. And like, when you're not healed, you end up just attacking the right wrong person. It's a lot of like misdirected anger. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I was kind of saying it as a joke, but I do think that there's also like, you know, I think on the one hand though, if I was just like having a bunch of people of color on my podcast, to and doing that sort of performatively like and then not going out and actually doing any real work in the real world it's like that's where I feel it's like me having people on my podcast is like yeah that's great but for me in terms of real work it's like not the real work like (laughs) um like it's going to be with my I mean I guess having people on the podcast is an action but I just see it as a much more well-rounded job that like we can't just do that one thing and like have the token black person and okay, great. Mm -hmm. Now I'm, I'm an activist and I have this thing and I'm doing great for the world. So it is. And it's, I think in every one of these situations for us to address the nuance in it. And I think if anyone, a teacher or otherwise a person of color or otherwise says that this is a black and white thing to be skeptical about that. Yeah. (laughs) That's There's not- so much nuance to everything and everything's so situational. So it's important to recognize that. Yeah, totally. Um, so 
let's talk about like activism and boundaries. It's someone emailed me the other day and asked like, do you have any like people that you follow that like talk about like how to set boundaries in like social media spaces? And I totally sent them to your like Instagram story about like new people. Um, so I don't know to like merge these two questions. I know you don't call your page an activist page. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to, and you call it education. And so is education not activism? Like, I'd love for you to break that down and like what your thought process was in saying it wasn't an activist page. Yeah, I guess I, I, education is a form of activism. Um, anything that you're creating to balance the scales is a form of activism. Just surviving as a person of color or person with disabilities or someone who's outside of the societal norm is a form of activism. But I don't call myself an activist page because I feel like that movement has been hijacked by problematic people um, and problematic activists who don't have any sort of education in what they're actually doing. And they incite a lot of hate and don't offer solutions because they're just not educated enough to offer solutions. Um, Solutions aren't always financial. So I see that all the time where like people request money and I'm like, this isn't a solution. This is just benefiting you as a human. It's not like pouring anything back into the community that you're so-called being an activist for, but like who are you, who's really benefiting at the end of this. So um, anyway, so yeah, I do create, I did recently create boundaries. Um, and I think honestly, it's something everyone needs to do and everyone's boundaries are going to be different. So I follow um, a woman called, or I'm actually not sure what she identifies with. I'm pretty sure she's a woman, but she, her name is Kendriana Speaks, and she has um, community guidelines that you have to agree to before following her. Hers are completely different than mine. Hers are like, I'm not going to center whiteness. I don't answer questions from white people. I'm paraphrasing. This is kind of what I remember. It might be different now, but, um, and I that's clearly not my, you know, community guideline. I have a whole series of white people asking questions and I don't mind in that realm centering whiteness in their questions. So everyone's is going to be different. However, I think that how people interact with each other online is so problematic because we're all strangers and we would never say some of these things in person to each other. And because of that, I feel like people have these really weird responses to things that they read and they feel like they have the authority or space to go on to other people's space and unload all of their opinions, all of their emotional trauma, all of these things. And that's not normal. You wouldn't go up to a stranger and do that in real life. So my community guidelines just echo how you would treat me in real life is please treat me like that on the internet as well. With that said, I didn't realize that this is going to be such a problem until I talked to other large accounts, but like mine grew from like 12,000 to 20,000, like in a couple, like in a week and to manage like 8,000 new faces that you, like I engage with everyone, but then to all of a sudden engage with people I don't know and who don't, don't know my, my work and aren't familiar and then receiving feedback from them. I realize I don't really care what they have to say. I care about my community and people that I've established a relationship with, but like people who don't know my work and like feel that they can offer these opinions. I don't care. One, number two, I didn't realize how detrimental that would be on my mental health. Like 
I consider myself a pretty strong, mentally strong person, but it is not normal for one person to read 500,000 things a week from most from Facebook, from my own website, from Instagram, from Twitter. And I realized I was ingesting all of these, this negativity and it was seriously affecting my mood, my depression, like my anxiety, my frustration. And then I would get online and unload it all over my stories. Like I would unload it and people, other people had to ingest that. And I realized how the average person doesn't ever interact with that many people. One and number two doesn't receive that much negative feedback. And I realized this is what celebrities feel like when they read tabloids about themselves and feel like they have to defend themselves. And it's like, that's not normal for a human to receive. So I felt like I had to spell it out that, that my part of it is like, I also have to protect myself. Otherwise I don't, I'm because I want to protect others. So by me not protecting myself, that means how I show up isn't how I need to be showing up. And I don't need to unload everything that I'm feeling onto other people. So again, it's all about like establishing boundaries so that I can come in as a healthy, sane person and not continue this like vomiting of emotion everywhere. Um, so that's why I created the boundaries. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I think like for me, the, I've had to go through relatively similar realizations and like what I've recognized is the reason it's so harmful to get all that negative feedback is because for the vast majority of it, like that, those thoughts are already in my head. Like I already have the internalized dialogue of like, I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, I'm racist. I'm whatever it is. Like I've got all these terrible thoughts and then all that, that like, and then trying to tell myself that, Oh, if I was just, strong enough and confident enough and like did enough of my own work that that stuff shouldn't affect me. And I just think that's really self-destructive. Yeah, for sure. I actually asked one of my friends who is, who is a counselor. I was like, why is it that I hold on to these negative thoughts more than I do good? Like I, I received 50 great messages to one bad message, but like you said, it's imposter syndrome where I'm already thinking that in my head where I'm like, am I anti-black? Am I you know, racist. And when somebody tells you that it just confirms that you already believe. And that's the thing that you latch onto. But she was telling me that, um, your amygdala holds on to negative responses because it, it acts, it's your survival mechanism. So that like you stay away from things that, that will forward your survival. So it's normal to hold on to negative things rather than positive things. And once I learned that I was like, Oh, I should probably eliminate, I should eliminate the negative opinions that aren't constructive to my learning and growth and from people who have no context or education to teach me, period. So um, I had another comment about negativity. Oh, I also, during that same week, um, somebody had sent me an article. Basically, when every time you get censored or your your something gets removed from Facebook or Instagram there has to be somebody removing that and making those decisions well somebody sent me an article saying that it actually is outsourced to Filipino to the Philippines and there's a ton of Filipino workers looking at every single thing that gets reported and making the decision whether to remove it or to keep it those people have been committing suicide at very high rates 
because they are seeing beheadings, they're seeing hate speech, they're seeing racism, they're seeing porn, they're seeing um, children getting molested, they're seeing all kinds of crazy things every single day. It has nothing to do with them as people. It's not personally, it's not their account. They're just viewing these negative images all day and then they're killing themselves. And then it made me also realize like, wow, the things that I'm digesting or just even watching really affect my mentality and how healthy I am to present every day in my everyday life. And so I just wanted to make sure I was protecting myself to not have to do that. Holy shit. That like totally gave me chills. You talking about that. That's fucking horrifying, but makes total sense. Yeah. And I, and then again, it's like back to the nuance though. It's like that we have to protect ourselves from that, but then we also can't say like, it's too much. I'm too sensitive. I just can't do any of this work. You know, it's like, yeah, fuck. exactly. <laughs> There's such a fine line. And, yeah. and honestly, I can tell it right away when I see it, but I couldn't make up a rule. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't make up a rule that says like, Oh yeah, if you react this way, that's bad. If you react this way, it's good. It's like, you just, it's so situational. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it's like just about doing whatever I can in my own like mental and spiritual health to like learn how to trust my own intuition. And like when something doesn't feel right, listening to that, but then also like when I feel like I'm centering myself or making excuses for something to also listen to that. Um, All right. Well, this was awesome. I, two more questions. One, tell people where they can find you. And then secondly, if you had one book that you would want everyone to read, it can be about the work that you do or really anything. What would it be? Okay. Um, so you can find me on Instagram at how not to travel like a basic bitch. You can find me on Facebook. Um, my Facebook page is how not to travel like a basic B because they don't, they censor out the word bitch. <laughs> um, and then Twitter is don't travel basic because my name was too long and they wouldn't accept it. Um, but, and then my website is www.hownotchtravellikeabasicbitch.com. Um, my goal for 2019 is actually to have a censored website where people can use it in their offices and in their classrooms and not have the word bitch in it. So that's my 2019 goal. Sweet. Um, but and as for a book, that's such a good question. Well, first of all, I want to say that in 2019, um, my book, it's not my book. It's a collective of stories by Native people, Indigenous peoples of not just America, but of New Zealand also. Um, we'll be coming out with a book. It's, it's going to be called Traveling While Native, but there'll be a subtitle that's more appropriate. But it's based off of the series that I hosted on my website. And I think everybody should read that book and it will be out 2019. I can't give you an exact month, but um, it is being compiled right now. And I think that everybody should read that book. But as for, as for, I guess my learning on racism, is that what we're talking about? Like a yeah. racist or just, yeah. Or just like anything that like really contributed to your own growth, like something, if you could give a book to everyone on the planet, like what, I know that's a crazy question, but what might that be? <laughs> what was one of them? Um, I always come back to the book called the four agreements. Um, it's called, it's by Don Miguel Ruiz, I believe. And he, there's a lot of religion attached to it and spirituality. And I would say if you're not a spiritual or religious person to just ignore that part. But um, 
go to the basis of the thing. So there's four rules that everyone should live by. And I think those four rules are really, really important in being able to one, maintain mental health and two, show up in the world, how you want to show up. So I would say the four agreements is what I would recommend everyone read. (laughs) Cool. Perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a great conversation. Hello again. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you would like to help support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates. You can also uh, support by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or simply saying to someone you think might enjoy an episode, hey, I heard this cool podcast, you should check it out. All of that stuff helps. My goal is just to reach as many as people, uh, reach as many people as possible, and you guys play an integral role in that. Thank you all so much for your support thus far. The song that I'm going to play you out with today is by Amadou and Miriam. They are a blind couple from Mali, and they're fucking amazing. And I have to thank my friend Thomas, who I met a decade ago, which is crazy that it's been that long, when I was living in Amsterdam. Thomas, if you listen, you were absolutely my uh, musical muse and sensei back then. Probably my muse and sensei of of more than just music, but certainly music. (laughs) And I've been listening to them ever since. The song I'm going to play today is called Les Temps Changés, which in my very broken French, which used to be way better when I actually spoke it when I was 12, but oh well. It's a terrible loss, Um, but it basically means times change, and I think in relation to both what I was talking about in my intro and in my episode with Kiona that, you know, things shift and evolve and that it's important for us not to try and go backwards or to try and make up for something that was lost in the past, but rather move forward authentically and do our best to make the most of all of life's death and rebirth. So enjoy the song, enjoy the holidays, however you are celebrating them or not celebrating them. And I will talk to you all soon.
Let me go to the 